guys, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I thought I would go back and talk about a couple of my favorite punk bands. So I already did an episode on the Sex Pistols. I divulged pretty heavily into them. So today I thought I would talk about The Clash and maybe next week I'll talk about The Ramones. So we'll see. Uh, But today is all about The Clash. Literally, without further ado, let's just jump right into the story of The Clash. Prior to punk having even started, what was important to note was that the youth back then were getting really bored with the contemporary music that was on the charts. Kids were starting to rebel against what was normal, or quote-unquote normal, I guess, in society at this time, and kids were not looking to be repressed anymore. In London, at this time, what was actually popular was reggae. So you have a lot of interesting flavors and dynamics that are coming into London and are starting to like breed into the youth culture at this time. And while reggae was great, it just like wasn't what a lot of the youth were really vibing with somewhere, but like a lot of them were looking for something edgier, something grittier, because obviously they were lower class or middle class kids that were having problems with their family or school or something like that. And they wanted music to like represent what they were feeling and going through. So that's kind of where the punk roots kind of started. You have the Sex Pistols, for example, and they had the look, they had the grit, they had the ability to like reach to the youth and say, we understand what you're going through and talk about everything that was happening within politics at the time in England and things like that. The Clash falls right into this whole kind of category. And there was a pub rock band in London at this time called the 101ers. And this was where Joe Strummer would get his start because he sang and played rhythm guitar for the 101ers. And they were a decent band at this time. I mean, they weren't like the greatest thing ever, but they were making the rounds in London. So Joe Strummer was in this band. At this time, he was going by his nickname, Woody, but he would later change his name to Joe Strummer because of the way that he strummed his guitar. Uh, So Mick Jones is another key figure in The Clash, and he played in a band called the London SS in 1975 with friend Tony James. Tony James would later be part of the Generation X band, and he was friends with like Billy Idol and all of them. Mick Jones and Tony James, they were influenced particularly by American punk, particularly like the Ramones and the New York Dolls and other type of American punk bands like that. Over here in England, they weren't really listening to that. Not a lot of people were. So for Mick and for Tony to be really ingrained in the American punk movement at this time and like garage rock groups and things like that, it was kind of different. Mick Jones would actually become friendly with the Sex Pistols and a lot of like the key figureheads in that band and the people that surrounded the Sex Pistols. They all kind of became friends with one another and it makes sense. You know, you're in the same genre, you're in the same location, you just happen to naturally become friends. It makes sense. So London SS, they got a flat in Paddington in London to rehearse and they eventually tried to get people to audition for the band because it was just the two of them. Just two friends having a go, trying to make something of themselves. So they were like, you know what? Let's expand a little. Let's add some people in this group. So they had a number of people try to audition for the band, and it just didn't even work out. Even Chrissy Hind at this point in time, who was hanging out with the Sex Pistols, she once came down to rehearse an audition as well, but it didn't really land anywhere. She just kind of remained friends with them. 
But that's kind of like, again, the scene that I'm trying to set here. Like, that's where we're going with this. It wasn't until Paul Cinnamon. That is so hard for me to say because I want to say cinnamon. Paul Simonin. Um, Paul, he auditioned for London SS as the singer, but it didn't work out. But Paul Cinnamon, I did it again. I did it again. This is going to be so challenging for me. I'm just going to say Paul. I'm not going to say his full name. So after like a year, like six months or so, just, you know, not that long, really, of the London SS kind of gigging around the local area in London and Paddington and trying to make something of themselves and try to audition people for the band, but adjust feeling, they eventually split in 76. Tony James, like I mentioned, he went on to meet Billy Idol through an Adam Melody maker not long after, and then he went on to be in Generation X, you know, the whole thing there. So Mick Jones was like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> so eventually um, he saw the Sex Pistols perform live because obviously he was friends with them. So during one of these live concerts that he went to see them at, he said this. You knew straight away that was it. And this was what it was going to be like from now on. It was a new scene, new values. So different from what had happened before. A bit dangerous. I mean, absolutely. Again, the Sex Pistols, I think, is one of those figureheads that kind of spearheaded the whole punk movement because they had the looks, right? They had the attitude. They had the songs to go with. I mean, they only had one album, but like it actually did something. But The Clash like went a little bit further and achieved a little bit more success in some respects than the Sex Pistols. And you might think to yourself, how is that possible? Well, I'm going to explain a little bit later on there but so Mick sees the Sex Pistols live and he's like oh my god this is revolutionary I knew that this is what I was just gonna do for the rest of my life and that there was no stopping this roller coaster so he kind of took it head on and he was like right I have to form a new band this is where Paul would come in again on bass and he brought in Keith Levine on guitar but they were looking for a lead singer because they were amazing musicians in their own right, but none of them really knew how to sing or they didn't want to sing. So they were like, right, we need that person in the band that can be the lead singer and be that kind of person like a Johnny Rotten type. Like that's what they were looking for, you know, like a like the leading man. And so Joe Strummer comes in, right? So he catches the eye of Mick Jones and his friend Tony James when they saw the 101ers playing on stage one night. And this is the thing where they saw Joe Strummer on stage and he was phenomenal. They met him after the concert and they were like, Joe, listen, you're great, but the rest of your band sucks. And Joe was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so Mick propositioned Joe to audition for The Clash and he was like, okay, so in no time at all, like the turnaround was two days. In two days, Joe became the official fourth member and lead singer of The Clash. And that was where history would go on. And yes, so now The Clash is finally here. Now let's get into like their early gigs and how they actually became famous, because this is interesting. So The Clash were rehearsing together as this four-piece band for around a month when they made their debut on the 4th of July, 1976, supporting the Sex Pistols at their Sheffield show. So this is like their major kind of debut show as The Clash. Hours after this debut, The Clash and the Sex Pistols went to Dingwall's club to watch the Ramones play. Can you imagine how seminal that must have been? I mean, 
The Ramones are there. The Sex Pistols are there. The Clash is there. I mean, I just can only imagine. Everyone was buzzing and the walls were just like bouncing with so much amazing adrenaline and like punk rock goodness. I just can't even comprehend how insane that is to me to imagine the three groups together in one place. I just love that stuff. But I mean, they were taking massive inspiration from the Ramones and the Sex Pistols themselves because they were friends with them and other like punk groups and garage groups and forming their own kind of sound, which is what makes The Clash so unique because obviously as time goes on, The Clash changes their sound a lot, which is fine. That's what bands do, but their first few records were so good. So getting back to it. Soon enough, on the scene in England, the punk movement was forming. They had The Clash. They had The Damned, The Buzzcocks, and The Sex Pistols. I mean, this is an amazing time in rock music history. You have to be there to really understand it. It's only it's it's one thing, I suppose, just to see it many decades later and like view it in pictures or songs or video clips on YouTube or something, but it's another to actually have been there and witnessed the start of something spectacular because Britain was changing so quickly overnight with all of these punk bands coming up into the forefront of their culture. It was insane. On the 29th of August, 1976, The Clash and The Buzzcocks opened for The Sex Pistols. I just can't imagine this lineup. So amazing. They opened for them at the screen on the green. This was The Clash's first public performance since their debut a month prior in July. They are just getting their amazing foot in the door. Can you imagine? Their first show was with the Sex Pistols. Their second show ever was with the Buzzcocks and the Sex Pistols. I mean, they're doing everything so right. They're just getting off on the best foot. By September, Keith Levine had been fired due to his excessive drug use. Sometime later, like a few years later, actually, Keith Levine and Johnny Rotten would end up forming Public Image Limited together, which is the band that uh, Johnny Rotten made after the Sex Pistols. So that's really interesting. So by the end of the year 1976, The Clash were the supporting act for the Sex Pistols Anarchy Tour in December in the UK. And this is kind of really important to kind of solidify for you guys that this Anarchy Tour with the Sex Pistols was really, really riveting, mostly because of the fact that the Sex Pistols were seen as hoodlums that were no good, that were bad boys, that just did drugs, and they were inciting violence with the kids, with the youth culture, and that their music was like evil, (laughs) you know, things like that. So the squares, if you will, the people who didn't like punk music and were just nine to five people in suits or the politicians, uh, lawyers and, and people like that, like the stuffy uptight people, that kind of aristocratic air about England at this time was still very prevalent. So when The Clash and The Sex Pistols were coming up together, in this punk scene, they were fighting back a lot with a good majority of the English public that were not having this, right? They were like, we don't want this corrupting our youth culture, our kids. This is not good. So when they went on this anarchy tour, 
most of the time, a lot of these uptight venues actually banned them from coming and performing, which is insane. So when they were on this tour, they would go from place to place to place. They would show up. But a lot of these venues would say, you can't come in your band. We don't want you playing here because you're inciting all of these, you know, horrific things and, and you're violent and you're aggressive and your music is not what we stand for. So most of the time they would be holed up in their hotel rooms trying to find something to do, trying to get anywhere they could to play their music to and it just kind of kept spiraling and spiraling to a point where this anarchy tour was just not where it was at and it was making them both the clash and the sex pistols really unhappy and really antsy like they couldn't do anything about this and they were now kind of forming a stronger opinion against you know the corporate man so they just saw this as another reason why they had to keep doing their punk music because everyone else was against them, but they saw that there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. When they got to a certain venue or a certain town that they were going to be performing in, the local councils would actually ask them to play to them just to make sure that the bands weren't getting into any like riffraff, you know, that they were straight laced and they weren't going to do anything untoward, which is insane. But back then, people were not happy with this punk movement. A lot of them weren't, you know. It's the rebellious nature of kids that were saying, F the police and F the politicians and F the royals and F everything else. F the corporate world, etc., etc. We want to do what we want to do. Anarchy in the UK. They came back from the anarchy tour and they were really kind of dejected about what had happened. That tour just did not go well. But one of the major things that ended up happening to The Clash was they were signed to CBS Records for an unprecedented £100,000, which this was a band that was somewhat relatively somewhat, I say somewhat kind of lightly, unknown in the, in the terms that they didn't have any major songs out. They only performed a small handful of times on stage. So for The Clash to get signed to a £100,000 contract was kind of insane at the time. That just goes to show that they were making a really strong headway. Their debut single was called White Riot, which released in March on the 18th in 1977. And then their debut album, called The Clash, released in April on the 8th in 1977. It was apparently recorded and mixed in only three weeks for a total of £4,000 that was put to this recording time. I mean, three weeks, that's really not that bad. That's a quick turnaround time. The album reached number 12 in the UK charts, which is pretty decent. However, their label refused to give it a US release, believing that its raw, barely produced sound wouldn't really make any kind of marketable profit over in America, which is crazy. Because like I said, the Ramones were already there. So how does that logic make sense? It's just so interesting. However, two years later, the album would be released in America, and this would become actually the best-selling import of 1979 in the U.S. It seems like everyone was waiting for a band like The Clash to make it on the scene and give them something new, something for their teeth to sink into, something that made them relate to the hardships that they were going through. And The Clash said, listen, we're going through the same stuff problems with girlfriends or family or work or this, that, and the other. We gave them the music that the youth wanted 
and therefore the clash was put at the forefront. So this is where things were starting to turn up for the clash. Their next song was called Police and Thieves, and this was a reggae type of song, and it actually made waves. And this was good because, like I said at the beginning, reggae was already an established genre that was very ingrained in the roots of London culture at this time in the 70s. The Clash actually saw reggae as a genre that they were very influenced by. They actually didn't turn away from it, which is, I think, one of the things that makes The Clash a very unique punk-sounding band because they infused a lot of different genres into their music. Instead of just staying to the traditional punk roots, they expanded and they were already doing something that had a bit of spice to it that not a lot of these other punk bands had under their belt. So they weren't afraid to like try something different, mix something else into their songs, which is cool. The revolving door of drummers in The Clash just was starting to become tiresome at this point. They didn't really keep a steady drummer. They had a couple that were here and there that would stay for a few weeks and then would leave. You know, it just literally was a revolving door of drummers. They couldn't keep one down until they landed the gold mine of drummers at the time, Topper Heaton. So Topper Heaton, he was fantastic. He elevated the sound of The Clash from just being a great band to being an amazing band, right? Topper Heaton had previously been in London SS in the beginning, which was Mick Jones's band, like I mentioned earlier, but he left because he thought that London SS just weren't very good. Let me explain. So the difference between Topper Heaton and everyone else at the time, (laughs) which is so interesting, was Topper didn't like punk music. Strange that he's in a punk band, right? But he didn't really think that punk music was very good. Topper was a bit more trained in other kinds of music genres, and he was more into funk and jazz, which was where he got his rhythm and the ability to keep time with his drums, which is so important. So this is what made Topper an amazing drummer, and he actually helped the band elevate their sound already. They were great musicians on their own, right? You know, I'm not going to lie, obviously. You know, Paul and Mick and Joe, they were great. But when Topper came along, they had to, like, elevate and step their game up to match Topper's level. And this is what made The Clash so much better. And he raised their sound to be mainstream and and so much more popular. So Topper really is the MVP. We have to give it up to him. He is the thing that made The Clash go from great to amazing. With this new lineup in May of 77, The Clash went on their White Riot tour with the Buzzcocks, Subway Sect, The Slits, and The Prefects, which were just a couple of other punk acts at this time. This was where they noticed an immediate shift in this tour comparatively to the Anarchy tour with the Sex Pistols. I mean, that one went so awry, but the White Riot tour was what it really should have been. The White Riot tour was perfect. They actually had the cred to go and stay and make it in these venues, and their venues would say, okay, you can come in and play your music, and everyone was like thriving on this tour. It was perfect. This was where things started to go right for them in every sense. And also, they noticed the music was hitting harder with the kids, because like I said, they were kind of more relatable and down-to-earth in the way that they would write their songs, 
you know, the clash made it easy and simple for any kind of kid to understand. They were talking about everyday street politics that most kids already knew and were familiar about. You didn't have to think twice about the lyrics. It just hit home a, a bit different. So all of these things together combined to make The Clash really set up for success. Also in May, their label released Remote Control as the debut album's second single. And this went against the band's wishes because the band thought that Remote Control was the album's weakest song. But CBS was like, who cares? We're going to put it out as the second single anyway. You have no authority over me. So the band was kind of not happy with this, but they were like, well, what can we really do about it? It's already out to the public. So Remote Control was released in September, and it had gone on to be considered one of punk's greatest singles. Now moving on into February of 1978, the band came out with the single Clash City Rockers. In a rare BBC TV appearance, the group played the song along with Tommy Gunn on TV. And again, yeah, they wouldn't really make a whole lot of public appearances on TV. They just weren't really a fan of that. In June, this saw the release of the song White Man and Hammersmith Palais, which surprised fans with its reggae rhythm and arrangements. Again, they were heavily experimenting with different genres, and they really liked the groove of reggae, the funk of reggae, kind of like everything that reggae had to offer in terms of arrangements and rhythm, they wanted to take that and put it into their music. And I think that's what made them stand out and be so different. The song actually became a favorite with the fans and it was voted as single of the year in the 1978 NME readers poll. So they were doing something right with this. So before The Clash began recording their second album, CBS requested that they adopt a cleaner sound in order to reach American audiences. And this is where things would kind of start to take off in a slightly different direction. Because at the time, actually, I guess it's still that way now for some reason, but a lot of English bands, when they're starting out and they like really have made a massive impact with fame in their home country, America is the next place that they look to to get fame. Mostly because I guess the American audience can be maybe a bit of a stickler for certain kinds of English music. So it's almost like when you make it over in America, you know that as a British band, you've actually made it in the world, which is quite a phenomenon to me. I understand it, but it just is so interesting how that is. But so anyway, they were having their sights set on gaining their American audience. So for their second album, they brought on Sandy Perlman, who was known for his work with Blue Oyster Cult, etc. And he was hired to produce their second album. Unfortunately, a lot of the band thought that this recording for their second album was not that great. Paul later recalled that recording the album was just the most boring situation ever. It was just so nitpicking, such a contrast to the first album. It ruined any spontaneity. And Joe agreed that it wasn't our easiest session either. Even with these kind of things in mind, some listeners complained about the album being a more mainstream production, which I think that was the point. I think the point was they wanted to mainly reach an American audience, which is where they kind of altered their sound just a bit to kind of be a bit more mainstream so that it would be palatable to the American people. However, the British people were like, what is this? Are you already selling out? So their second album was called Give Him Enough Rope and it was received largely positively. It released in November of 1978. It did receive mixed reviews, but it landed at number two in the charts. So 
Enemy readers voted the album as the second best album of 1978, and The Clash were voted the best group in the same end-of-the-year poll. Unfortunately, (laughs) there had to be a caveat to this. Their main goal of trying to attract the American audience with this album totally backfired because the album was not the breakthrough that the label hoped that it would be. It only went to number 128 on the billboard chart which is not good (laughs) and the american audiences were like we don't really care about this so unfortunately it didn't do what they hoped that it would so they were a bit dejected but in their home country it was fine the album's first uk single tommy gun rose to number 19 and they made their first ever music video to go along with the song so they were doing something right here Their second single was called English Civil War, and it was released in February of 1979, and it went to number 25 in the UK charts. So again, it did pretty decent for itself, not that bad at all. So in support of the album, the band toured the UK and had supporting bands The Slits and The Innocents. And then after this, The Clash then undertook their first largely successful tour of America in February of 1979, which... Is bold considering the album didn't land at all in America, like at all, but they were like, let's go over to America anyway. Surprisingly, the tour in America was a success versus their album. I don't know how that adds up. I can't do the math on that one, but it actually is quite interesting to see that they did so much better on a tour of America versus just an album trying to reach America. Fascinating. So then they released an EP called The Cost of Living, which released in May of 1979, and it featured one of The Clash's amazing songs, their most popular, or one of their most popular songs called I Fought the Law, which is so catchy. I actually really like that song a lot. So now the wheels are turning, the gears are spinning. They didn't land with American audiences with their second album, but they sure as hell was going to get the audiences with their third album their seminal album, London Calling. Yes, they began recording for London Calling in August and September of 1979. And actually, I didn't know that this was a double album. For some reason, I just kind of assumed it was just one. I didn't really know at the time that it was a double album, but that's what it was. Which was quite somewhat maybe daring for a punk band at the time to do a double album. Because when you think about it, A lot of punk songs are about two minutes maximum, so it's just so fascinating to me that they're like, no, let's make this an entire double album. Okay, it worked though. The album was a mix of punk, reggae, ska, rockabilly, and traditional rock and roll. I mean, they went all out. (laughs) The vibe was high. They were really setting the bar so high for themselves with this one. They were like rubbing their hands together like, right, how do we get the American audience on this one? They were like, let's just throw all of the genres in here. We got ska, we got rockabilly, we got rock and roll, we got reggae, we got it all, we got a bit of jazz in there, we have everything that anyone could ever ask for. They were catering to so many different kinds of people, and I think that's why this album hit pretty well, even though I think the purists for punk despise this album because it's so eclectic but honestly it still does what it needed to do and it's still an amazing punk record with so many variables to it so i like this album say what you will but it's a great album 
So the title track also happened to be heavily influenced by the BBC World Service call signal and the panic that resulted in the Three Mile Island nuclear scare. It's regarded as one of the greatest rock albums ever recorded. That's exactly what it is. So the album's final track, Train in Vain, which is my favorite song. I love that song. It was included at the very last minute for some reason. Maybe they just forgot to put it on there or it just slipped their mind or something. Because it was included on the album at the very last minute, it didn't appear in the track listing on the cover for, for some reason. I mean, they obviously just kind of forgot and it was like a rushed job kind of, but it became their first US top 40 hit. Finally, they broke the American market. It peaked at number 23 on the Billboard chart. And in the UK, this song wasn't released as a single. The title track, London Calling, was the single that was released in the UK. Here it rose to number 11, which is the highest position any Clash single reached in the UK before the band's breakup. This album was a landmark album. It did so phenomenally. It released in December, and it hit number nine on the British chart, and in the U.S., it was issued a release date for January of 1980, reached number 27. Even though, like, 27 is, like, a respectable place on the chart, it didn't hit at, like, number five or two or one. It did decent, okay? It broke the U.S. top 40, which, in all respects, I guess, is very fair. One of the things that I really, really like about this album is the cover. I think it's, in my mind, one of the most iconic albums, at least in terms of the cover, of all time, right? It's it's so amazing with Paul. He's, he's breaking apart and throwing his bass on the ground. He has that, like, punk stance. And then you have the lettering on the album, which says London Calling on the side and on the bottom, right? The thing about the album cover is they took direct inspiration from Elvis Presley's self-titled debut album. I thought, that's insanely clever. It was just the fact that they paid homage to him, which to me is a sign of respect, and I like that. I think that's so fascinating because Elvis's debut album, it has a picture of him, which is really cool, and it has his name in the same font, in the same coloring. A London Calling, it's the same concept, and I think that is so, so cool. It became one of the best-known album covers in the history of rock. The image is a whole other reason why this album cover is so iconic. And the image was taken by photographer Penny Smith. It was later cited as the best rock and roll photograph of the time by Q Magazine. Now, what's fascinating about this, Penny Smith originally did not want the photograph to be used. She thought that it was too out of focus, like it wasn't her best work. Joe Strummer and graphic designer Ray Lowry saw this image and thought, no, this would make an exceptional album cover. Rolling Stone magazine also voted the album as the album of the decade for the 80s. So now that The Clash had done what they wanted to do and they achieved their fame over in America, they achieved fame in their home country, and they're achieving worldwide global fame, the Clash had planned to record and release a single every month in the year 1980, but CBS laughed at them and was like, are you kidding me? The band only came out with one single, an original reggae song called Bank Robber in August of 1980. As you can imagine, 
the song did very well because it had that reggae feel to it that The Clash already had like down pat. And this song was released before the December album Sandestina. Sandestina is an absolute beast of an album. It's a three LP, 36 song album. And I just, I can't wrap my mind around that fact. I mean, I don't know how they're doing this. First London Calling was a two LP album. They were like, cool, we're going to throw in all these varying genres. That's great. No, Sandestina was like three LPs. That's a six-sided album. I mean, this is what it was at the time. There was no CD. There was none of that. Vinyl was king. And so to have a three LP album, you, you had to make it good. So there was a lot riding on this album to be amazing because not any casual listener would pick this album up and be okay with flipping their album over six times. I think that would be too much, right? Only I think like the hardcore Clash fans would be comfortable doing this, but everyone else would be hard pressed to get up and have to change the album six times. I think that's too much. But Sandestina at this time reflected a wide range of musical styles, which is very ambitious because they included dubs, which kind of is like a branching off point from reggae. And they also, weirdly enough, added rap elements because the thing about this, Sandinista, I'm saying it wrong, sorry, (laughs) Sandinista was so different because they recorded this album in New York and New York at the time in the early 80s was morphing into the rap and the hip-hop game, which they would become very widely known for later on in the 80s and 90s, but this was just like the breeding ground and the starting off point to hip-hop and rap. While The Clash was in New York recording Sandinista, they were so interested in this, and so they put all of that into the album, which is cool. But then at the same time, it's like people just were so confused. They were like, question mark? What's going on with this? Like, you just did London Calling and now you're doing like a dub reggae rap album. What's going on here? Obviously, this was their most controversial album to date, both politically and musically, in the lyrical content and then in the arrangement of the songs. Critical opinion was divided. The album did much better in America, actually charting higher then London Calling. This album charted at number 24. Much better. It fared better in America. I think because the American audience was already accepting of this different kind of style because they were already hearing it in the music at the time. So it made sense. Other people, again, like in their home country of England, they were like, what is this hot garbage? I don't understand this. It's a three LP album. There's no way people are going to even have the time to even dedicate listening to this album. So people just kind of paid this no mind. Unfortunately, what can you do? In 1981, the band came out with the single This Is Radio Clash that further demonstrated their ability to mix diverse influences such as dub and hip hop. So with Sandinista under their belt, they set out to work on their fifth album in September, originally planning it as a... (laughs) as a small two LP album with the title Rap Patrol from Fort Bragg. For some reason, they were so keen to just have this bloated album. I don't know why. So production duties were handed to Glenn Johns and the album was reconceived as a single LP, thank God, and it was released as Combat Rock in May 1982. 
And again, this was very different. It followed a similar line to Sandinista, where it just was very different and very eclectic in the styles that it was kind of unfolding. It only contained two quote-unquote radio-friendly tracks called Should I Stay or Should I Go? and Rock the Casbah. Now, I'm sorry to say, I have never liked Rock the Casbah. I just don't understand the appeal to that song. I don't really like it, to be honest. Should I Stay or Should I Go is very iconic, and I like it. But Rock the Casbah, it's it's a bit like Jimmy Buffett kind of, it's just strange. I don't know, it's weird. I, it's just like, that's just my opinion. It's just, it has a nice groove to it, right? It has a nice groove. When you hear the groove, you kind of start dancing a little, but I just don't really find the appeal of the song in its entirety, sorry to say. Maybe I'm in the minority because Rock the Casbah was the band's biggest US hit ever, charting at number eight. Okay, and the video was put into heavy rotation by MTV. So, hey, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> the album itself, Combat Rock, was the band's most successful, but it hit number two in the UK and number seven in the US. And so, like I mentioned, right, everything good kind of has to come to its eventual end at some point. Tensions were starting to arise within The Clash, mostly because Mick Jones wanted to keep on experimenting and adding in these major influences into their work. Predominantly, he was really keen on the hip-hop aspect, like he just thought that was so fascinating. And like, how can we interpret a punk sound with a bit of hip-hop flavor? But the rest of the band was like, no, we did that already and we want to move on from this and so this kind of created a rift within the band the first to go was drummer topper and topper was fired because of his drug use at this point well they had to keep getting their revolving door of drummers like how it happened in the beginning this is fascinating because the clash opened for the who which is interesting just kind of how they started opening for major punk bands at the time and now in their career they're opening for the who which is like so vastly different in sound. But anyway, they opened for The Who on a leg of their final US tour. Though The Clash continued to tour, tensions continued to increase. In early 1983, the band went to the US festival in San Bernardino, California, where they co-headlined with David Bowie and Van Halen. Again, two massively different sounding bands comparatively to where The Clash started in the punk scene with the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks. I just find this to be so fascinating because clearly now The Clash have evolved from being just a punk band into an all-encompassing sound. So The Clash argued with the events promoters over ticket prices because they did not want their fans to pay an astronomical arm and leg for a concert ticket, which is fair. And The Clash threatened to pull out unless a large donation was made to a local charity. Okay, fair enough. They made a massive stink over this. Um, so the group ultimately performed, though, on May the 28th. It drew a massive crowd of 114,000 people, but they played behind a banner that said The Clash Not For Sale. So they were making, like, all these statements, and tensions were arising in the band. They were actually sprawling and having fights with security. It just got to a point where tensions were pulling so hard that it snapped. This was Mick Jones's last appearance with the group, and in September of 1983, he was fired from the band. The show kind of went on a little bit longer. So they had their album Cut the Crap. The recording sessions for this were so chaotic. <laughs> it was not good. Most of the music was played by studio musicians, essentially kind of like session musicians. It was crazy because 
the band was kind of split amongst the world and they were sending their own recordings from various parts of the globe into the studio and they weren't really there in the studio in person. Tensions were arising. It just was not good. And this was really, really strange. The band went on a busking tour of public spaces in cities throughout the UK playing acoustic versions of their hits and popular covers. Um, so I don't know, that to me is like a weird thing to do. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting concept, but like at this point in time, they were just kind of like going through it as a band. And the fact that they thought it was a good idea to like go on a busking tour, quite interesting. I'll just say that. So after a concert in Greece, Joe Strummer went to Spain to clear his mind. He was like, I need to get away from these fucking people. I can't be here right now. So he left. While he was abroad, the first single from this album called This Is England was released to mostly negative reviews. So it was kind of starting to crumble down for The Clash at this point. Their label, CBS, had paid in advance for it so that they had to put it out. Joe Strummer just, he couldn't be dealing with this anymore. He was livid with all of this. He couldn't deal. So the single This Is England had been drastically re-engineered with since and football-style chants added to Joe's incomplete recordings. You know, the band, to be fair, didn't really like this album. For the rest of his life, Joe largely disowned this album. This ain't my album. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this in my life. <laughs> Although he did profess that he really liked the song This Is England and the title track, North and South. I don't know. It's it's just like it's just weird. Like the 80s for this for the clash was just a weird, strange time of really odd things happening. Songs not landing, the band being separated. It's just it's just weird. Like tensions were rising. It came to a point where in early 1986 the clash officially disbanded. So, I think it was meant to happen a lot sooner than this. It got strung out, I think, too long, to be honest. I think they could have ended it much sooner than they did, but this was where they all had enough. Joe later described the group's end as, When the clash collapsed, we were tired. There had been a lot of intense activity in five years. Secondly, I'd felt we'd run out of idea gasoline. And thirdly, I wanted to shut up and let someone else have a go at it. Fair enough. He thought that, you know what? The clash was done. We already had everything that we needed to say. There's nothing more that needs to be done. This is it. The clash came to its natural conclusion. However, over the years, in like the 90s and in some parts of the 2000s, here and there, some of the members would get along with each other and play various shows and make public appearances. You know, that's kind of the general idea that happened here. On the 7th of November in 2002, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced that The Clash would be inducted the following March. So that was major. On the 15th of November, Mick Jones and Joe Strummer shared the stage performing three Clash songs during a London benefit show by Joe Strummer and his band called The Mescaleros. You know, they were fine. They weren't like at each other's necks or anything. They kept a relatively peaceful connection with each other, so it wasn't like it was awkward. They actually thought that they were going to reunite and do like a massive kind of coming together. The Clash wanted to play a reunion show to coincide with their induction into the Hall of Fame for 2003, but unfortunately, 
Paul didn't want to participate because he believed that playing at this high-priced event, which, I mean, yeah, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's no small feat. You have to pay an arm and a leg to get there. Uh, Paul didn't believe in this, and he didn't want to do that, and he thought it would go against the spirit of the clash. I understand that. Paul didn't want to go. Um, unfortunately, though, this would never happen because Joe had died suddenly due to congenital heart failure, and he died on the 22nd of December in 2002. So Joe's death ended any kind of possible full reunion, obviously, because once Joe was gone, the clash kind of really wasn't the clash anymore. However, in March of 2003, the Hall of Fame induction did take place and the clash got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that is essentially, in a nutshell, the clash and their story. And I think, honestly, it's really interesting. You know, I can see how The Clash is widely considered to be one of the best punk bands of all time. I mean, they were from the get-go doing the most and they had the style. But the massive difference comparing them to the Sex Pistols was that they actually had the musical ability. Not to say that the Sex Pistols didn't have talent because they did. But the Sex Pistols focused more on their aesthetic and their appearance and the attitude, the lyrical content, sure. But like, for example, Sid Vicious didn't actually know how to play the bass, okay? Johnny Rotten was a great singer, but he wasn't like the most technically great singer. Um, the drummer and the guitarist, fair. They only had one album and then they broke up, fair. Who knows what the Sex Pistols could have been if they had stayed together and Sid didn't die, fair. But The Clash was just, it had a little bit more that the other bands, I think, didn't really have. They had a bit of something else. You know, the four guys coming together in such a way that only, I think, they could do something like this. Only they could fuse reggae and punk together into this weird amalgamation that was London Calling with all these different elements like ska and a bit of rockabilly, you know, giving their homage to Elvis Presley. I mean, no other punk band would even do that because that would, I think, to them be considered selling out or like you're watering down the punk genre, which is crazy to me because punk is all about rebelling against the societal norms. And The Clash actually was a direct correlation to the punk ethos, which was that. They didn't give a damn that people didn't like maybe their eclectic taste pulling in rap and hip-hop or reggae and ska or this, that, and the third. They did what they wanted to do, and fair enough, they didn't really care what people had to say or think about them. So that, I think, is the true punk mentality, and they had that from day one. That's why I'm saying comparatively to like the Sex Pistols or the Buzzcocks or the Damned, um, the Ramones and things like that. It's just like in their own bubble, the clash was just a little bit different and we have to give it up to them and give them a lot of praise because they just knocked it out of the park. Not every album was great. Sure, they did a lot of questionable things in their career, but honestly, even with all of that in mind, again, they still did it their way. They still did what they wanted to do, and they had fun doing it. So what more can you really ask for a band? You know, we need more bands like that that just do what they want to do and not what society or their label or even at large their fans wants them to do. So that, in a nutshell, is the story of The Clash. Thank you guys very much for listening. I hope that you guys learned something today that you hadn't known about before. 
I will definitely see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. It's probably going to be the Ramones, so keep your eyes out for that one. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. <laughs>